Well, first of all, the good news. I'm only preaching from a few verses this evening and not 48 chapters. So will you turn with me to the book of Revelation and chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of God together. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's pray briefly. Lord, open our eyes to see something of the glory and beauty and majesty of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal Son. Send your Holy Spirit and grant us hearts and minds to hear and to receive the truth concerning Christ, that he may be exalted in our lives day by day, through the remainder of our days here upon earth, and then in eternity with him. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 
I'm not aware that the Greek island of Patmos is the favourite destination of tourists and holidaymakers. However, in 1999, UNESCO pronounced it was a world heritage site. Why? Two reasons. Because of a medieval monastery that was built there, and it was called the Monastery of St. John the Theologian. And also because there is a cave on that island that is named the Cave of the Apocalypse, where John is supposed to have written the book of Revelation. Now, whether those are good reasons or not, uh, I leave you to decide. But for Christians, Patmos is of great significance. You don't need to go to the island of Patmos. Maybe you don't even know where it is. Well, it's a Greek island, and it's off the coast, the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. That's where these seven churches were. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But you don't need to go there simply because the Lord Jesus Christ has been there. And a remarkable book is the result of Christ's appearing to John there on the island of Patmos. I'll use the word apocalypse from time to time this evening. An apocalypse simply means revelation, a divine disclosure, God making himself known this is then verse one the revelation of jesus christ which god gave john to show his servant gave gave him sorry to show his servants things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant john the book of revelation is effectively the last words of Jesus Christ to his church. They were spoken many hundreds of years ago, but they are now recorded for us in the abiding word of God. So what we read here and what we consider this evening is no less Christ addressing us in the 21st century. Patmos is probably the last place on earth you have expected Christ to speak. But Christ is not limited. There are many books in the Bible that were given in remote places. We saw this morning, where was Ezekiel when the Lord spoke to him? He was in exile in Babylon. Where was Paul when he received, when he rather delivered a lot of his letters he was in prison. Some of the great statements have, of the gospel have been given in times of great adversity and difficulty. John is no exception. We find him in verse 9, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. He was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
This small island of Patmos was a Roman penal colony. He had been banished there for the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an old man. We are probably in the last decade of the first century. It's 50 or 60 years since he last actually set eyes upon Jesus and went together with the disciples. He ascended into heaven. But here he is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He hears a loud voice like that of a trumpet. What he heard and who he saw is of great significance. He saw none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw him in his majesty and in his glory. And we are told here, and it is described for us in verses 12 to 17, we are told that it was an impressive, such an impressive figure that John was totally overwhelmed. And he fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus as one who was dead. It was a dazzling person, terrifying in its impact upon John. His clothing, his head, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth, his whole face. Just bowled John completely over. And as we look at these verses we see here the threads of a tapestry threads that are drawn for different parts of the old testament scriptures especially daniel and to understand then who it is these things are given to us not so we can paint a picture of the lord jesus christ rather identify who he is that is the crucial thing We need to know, we need to be fully aware and our faith needs to be fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look then at these words, this description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing, I have five things, but the first thing is this. This is the one who is alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. That puts the identity of this dazzling figure beyond any shadow of doubt. We are now looking at the once crucified and now exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And we are seeing something of his glory. We're not left to guess. Christ identifies himself. It's a self-disclosure by our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants John as well as us to know who he is and understand the significance of who he is. No clearer statement could be made to us by this impressive figure. I am he who lives and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore. The person then that John saw is not the projection of his imagination. This is not an old apostle who's 
beginning to lose it in his mind and in his eyes. He didn't see a statue. He didn't see a picture. He didn't see an icon. What he saw could never be painted. The burden of the passage is not what does Christ look like, but who is he? That's our concern. His identity. He is a living person. He is revealing himself in his majesty, in his rule, in his glory. It's a composite picture. I use that phrase, but it's not a picture, but you understand there are certain limitations to language. It's a composite picture. We try to unravel the threads of this apocalyptic tapestry concerning Christ. Remember, this vision is not just for John. It is for the entire church. Notice what is said in verse 19. Write these things which you have seen. And the things which are, the things which will take place after this. Why write it down? Well, if you write something down, it becomes permanent. It's a permanent record. It's there for the seven churches on the adjacent mainland. And it's there for us to read and to imbibe all that John saw on that special day, on the Lord's Day on Patmos. So it is for every subsequent generation. He is alive and active now. That is the first thing we need to know and to see about this person. Now let's try and unravel some of the other threads. They're a little more difficult to unravel. There's not total agreement among those who comment on these passages. But we see, first of all, we look and we see this living Christ is one like the Son of Man. Verse 13. That's the first thing John records. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, verse 12. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, in the midst of the churches, I saw one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, that title, is one of Christ's favorite titles for himself. It does not usually refer to his humanity. That's how it's often taken. But it refers primarily to his glory as the Son of Man. For example, in Matthew 25, that passage where Christ appears in his glory with all his angels to judge the world it is the Son of Man who comes in his glory with all his angels. And in chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 14, it's the Son of Man who reaps the harvest. Here is that apocalyptic thread. And we need to go back to Daniel and chapter 7. And you may want to keep your finger in Daniel uh, because we're going back to it several times. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees in a vision in the days of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, he sees four beasts from the sea. They're quite terrifying. A lion with eagle's wings. 
a bear with three ribs in its mouth, a leopard with four heads and wings, and then a dreadful beast, ten horns and iron teeth. Then in verse 9 we read, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. A few allusions here to John, what he saw, who he saw. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him ten thousand times. Ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then notice verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now you can see simply the parallel there between Daniel 7 and Revelation chapter 1. And John sees this living person, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. He is obviously no mere man. He possesses divine and heavenly glory. He is a king. Dominion and rule is given to him. Authority is given to him. All nations serve him. And it is quite clear if you read on in chapter 7, and verse 27 of Daniel, it is quite clear, and this is very comforting for the saints of God, he is acting on behalf of the saints themselves, on behalf of his church. He is alive and he is active and he is representing and acting on behalf of his church. And that is what John grasped and the church needs to grasp as we face Tribulation, while we are in this body, while we are on this earth, we will face tribulation. That's how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes that tribulation is hard, it is tough. We have it relatively easy in the UK, as you do here in the USA. But in some parts of the world, you stand up and say you are a Christian, that's the end of your life. You're done. You're finished as far as your enemies are concerned. Some of the apostles had lost their life. They'd faced tribulation. Many were going to face tribulation. One of the churches had a man called Antipas. He was martyred. His life was taken away by the authorities. 
What we need to know is this glorious Son of Man is no mere man. He is God. He is a King. The King. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. Revelation chapter 19. And you'll notice in Daniel, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man are separate. But in John, he sees them as one. You say, well, how, how, wait a minute, how could that be? We saw that the Ancient of Days has the same garment, the same hair. The Father and the Son are one God. There's no difficulty here. They are one God. The Son of Man is God. And here he is in his infinite glory and dominion, crushing his and our enemies. That is a great comfort. But that's the first thing really John grasps. Here is one like the Son of Man. But then we see, we look and we see this living Christ is our great high priest. Verse 13. Where is this one like the Son of Man in this vision? He is in the midst of his churches. What is he doing there? Why is he there? Why does he represent himself in this kind of way? This is the one who's seen who was dead and now is alive forevermore and he is among his churches. This is the one who earlier on in this chapter we read we have been washed washed from our sins in his own blood. He has made us kings and priests to God. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. We are kings, we are priests. We're serving God, we're praising him, we're worshipping him, we're adoring him, we're serving him. And here is Jesus in the midst of these lampstands. As a priest he has atoned for our sins and as a priest he intercedes for us. Forever. He is actively interceding. Hebrews 7 and verse 24. And the priest had a responsibility with regard to the seven golden lampstands. He takes care of the light. He makes sure that the lights continue to shine. Trimming the wicks, refueling them with oil. Symbolic of the spirit of God. So they shine brightly in this hostile world. He is the priest who sustains his people, caring for his churches, praying for them, speaking to them, reassuring them that he is who he claims to be. It may be that his head and his hair, white as wool, as white as snow, refers to his holiness. To his purity. You may remember those words in Hebrews 7 verse 25. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's our high priest. What comfort is this to John, to us? This one is not only alive, he is active, he is a king, but he's also a great high priest. He bears his, our names upon his heart. We are precious to him. 
But he now, Jesus, the Son of God, has passed into the heavens. We may not be able to see him with our eyes, but he is there. And our faith has to latch on to him. In that capacity is our great high priest. He doesn't slumber there. He doesn't sleep. Using the words of Psalm 127, he is our keeper. He preserves us from all evil. Our going out, our coming in from this day forth and forevermore. That's our great high priest. That's who John sees. You see, we're building up this picture of the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. So we see now, fourthly, we look and see this living Christ. And he is the heavenly messenger. Now that may not ring as many bells with you. But again, we'll go back in a moment to Daniel and see what I mean and what John is intended to understand. This man whom he sees, this one whom he sees, Verse 13, has a garment down to his feet, girded around his chest. There is a golden band, and many will see that as priestly garb. I'm not totally convinced. It may be the case. But in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has another vision. And again, I think you will see quite clearly another vision, this time of a glorious man. And there's an unmistakable identity Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4 on the 24th day of the first month as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz his body was like beryl his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like torches of fire his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. As you read those words, I think it's unmistakable. You're looking and listening to the same person here in Revelation chapter 1. This is the voice then of a glorious man, a heavenly messenger. And again, this is not John's vivid imagination. It is Christ revealing himself in this capacity. In chapter 10 and verse 14 of Daniel, this heavenly messenger says, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the revision refers to many days yet to come. And again, that's a parallel with Revelation. The things which are, the things which shall be. This is a heavenly messenger. This is the one who reveals God to us. He reveals God's plan. He reveals God's purpose and the victory. And he is the only one, remember, in Revelation who can open the scroll. He looses the seven seals. And he speaks. And John writes the things which he speaks. This is then the heavenly messenger. Some people say, well, now you've got, a, you've got a king, you've got a priest, you've got a prophet. Well, that, that fits in rather nicely, uh, but it's not something that is actually emphasized in the passage. But it, it helps us to understand and remember it, then that's fine. But you see, what 
what we are hearing here is the voice of Jesus Christ. And we remember what he says in John's gospel, in John chapter 12. When he speaks, he's not speaking on his own authority. John 12 and verse 49, he tells those who are listening to him, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And then those wonderful words in his prayer in John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. When he comes from heaven, his message is a message of eternal life. Salvation in all its fullness. Communion with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, his Son. He's the heavenly messenger. But returning now to Revelation and chapter 1, there is a one final aspect that we need to consider in this picture. There, as we look at this living Christ, he is also the righteous judge. The righteous judge. That is implied in the whole of the vision. That's implied in Daniel chapter 7 and also in Daniel chapter 10. Those eyes, as a flame of fire, a penetrating laser beam that sees absolutely everything. Then there is that mouth, that sharp two-edged sword. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that discerns the thoughts, the intents of the heart. Here is Christ then as this righteous judge. In Isaiah chapter 49, one of the servant songs, the servant of the Lord is given a mouth like a sharp sword. In Revelation 19 and verse 15, with that sword he will strike the nations. He's a judge, a righteous judge who assesses accurately the situation before him among the nations, in the churches. And then there is not in those eyes, not in the mouth, but that voice. It's like the sound of many waters. People suggest it's the crashing surf on the island of Patmos, the Mediterranean, in a storm. I'm sure many of you have been to Niagara Falls. If you stand particularly on the Canadian side, it's better than the, the American side, I have to say that. It's better there. But the, to stand anywhere near that, those crashing waters, you cannot hear yourself speak. I've also been to Zambia. And I've stood by the Livingston Falls. They're a mile wide. 
And I saw them after the wet season and the water crashing down. It was a frightening sight and a frightening feeling to stand by that water and to hear the roar, the constant roar. And that was like the voice, the sound of many waters, full of majesty, full of power, full of vigor, at the same time searching. When Christ speaks, he speaks a word that discerns the judges. He has a verdict. He will either bless or he will curse. He will bless those who have trusted in him and he will curse those who have refused him. It's either salvation or it is judgment. His glory, intensely joyful to the saints of God. Intensely so. Why? Because he speaks the words of eternal life. He's washed you from your sins by his precious blood. He set his love upon you before the foundation of this world. He has forgiven you all your trespasses and your sins. He's freely justified you. He's put you in his family. You're an heir together with him. You've been sealed with the Spirit until the day of your redemption. There is no reason to fear then this great judge. He has already judged your sin. He has already borne the curse that we deserve. He has been condemned in our place. He bore our sins in his own body on that tree. But that same glory, that same glory is terrifying if you've not put your trust in Christ. In chapter 1 of Revelation and verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. That's what Matthew 25 says. Jesus speaks those words. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will mourn because of him. Why will they mourn? Because they are face to face with the judge. And they will grieve over their sins. But it will be too late. Too late. I know some of you will have read Arthur Conan Doyle's detective story, Sherlock Holmes. I know they're a favorite of Pastor Jim. Because he's an imaginary figure. But Arthur Conan Doyle did a very strange thing in his lifetime. I don't know why he did this, but he wrote a series of anonymous letters to famous people in England. And he only wrote a few words in that letter. You have been found out. <laughs> and apparently... Some of these famous people fled, fled the country. They had a conscience. They had done something wrong. And they were told, you've been found out. I don't know. I don't think he could have done that today. He'd probably been prosecuted. But anyway, that's what he did. What does the scripture say? Be sure that your sins will find you out. 
There may be some of you sitting here, young, middle-aged, much older. You can conceal your sins. You, young people, children, you can conceal your sins sometimes from your mum and your dad. You can lie to them. Or you do something wrong and it's never found out. You're never exposed. But do you sleep with a clear conscience? Sin cannot be concealed from God. It cannot be concealed from God. And you see, God can never be reconciled to sin. And he can never be reconciled to you while you remain in your sin. That is impossible. You try to cover your sin, whoever you are, you cannot and will not prosper. And more important than that, you will not be able to stand before this righteous judge on the day of judgment. Those eyes will stare at you and condemn you to eternal condemnation. That is sobering. And I want to say to you tonight, there is no reason for you to be condemned on that day while Jesus Christ stands here and invites you to come to him and to be saved from every single one of your sins. To be washed entirely clean. You see, the truth of it is you're not a Christian. You have been found out and you will be found out and you will be exposed to the judgment of God. That is why you need Christ now. Now is the time to flee from the wrath that is to come. And Jesus stands ready, welcoming you, ready to receive you. But you say, I'm a sinner. Well, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the whole purpose of his coming into this world. He came to seek and to save what was lost. He came to redeem you by his blood, to make you a king, to make you a priest, to make you ready for heaven. That you would live with him forever and ever and praise him and adore him and love him because of who he is and what he has done for you. But he is a righteous judge. You cannot alter that. You cannot escape from that unless you flee to Christ here and now. The psalmist, is probably David, said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us could stand. Oh, but he goes on, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You need this Christ. You desperately need this Christ. And he is able and he is willing to save you right where you are this evening. Have some of you felt the drawing power of this Christ? 
and yet you're still standing back and retreating. I plead with you, walk in the other direction. Walk into those arms. Walk into those arms of Jesus Christ. They are welcoming arms. And you look at the hands, they're pierced with nails. The blood that he shed on that cross. Let him wash you clean tonight from all your sins. Let him make you pure. Let him make you holy. That you will dwell then with him forever and ever. If you are a child of God, you who are saints, the one we've seen tonight, this is your Redeemer. This is your Saviour. He's your prophet, he's your priest, he's your king. He is a righteous judge and he will act for you on your behalf, on behalf of his church. He will rescue you from all dangers, all trials, all temptations. He will deliver you. He will care for you. He loves you. He's laid down his life for you. We need to think far more about this Jesus than we actually do and to reflect upon him more and more. What fills your hearts, your minds, your thoughts, day by day? Right now, I would hope your mind is fairly full of what we've been considering. But what will happen tomorrow? What will happen on Tuesday and Wednesday? This is something and someone, someone that we need to remind ourselves every single day of our lives. He is alive. He is active on behalf of you who are his saints, who are the church of Christ in this place. The truth of the matter is whether you acknowledge it or not, you could not draw one breath apart from him. You couldn't live without him. But we need, as we think about these things, we need to love him. We need to adore him. We need to worship him. And we need to trust in this Jesus, this Christ, this one like the Son of Man. Vague ideas about Jesus and who he is are not enough. These are specific things about him. And our faith is to be fixed upon him in these specifics. And then our faith will be stronger and healthier. And our trust in him and our love for him will grow and increase. And then our resolve to serve him and to suffer for him will be far more secure and far more sure and certain. We will be able to say and look upon this Christ and say, well, whatever happens to me in this world, nothing is going to separate me from this Savior. Nothing at all. Nothing can. Nothing will. It is impossible. He is for me. And he will bring me through all the trials and temptations, trusting in him. As you walk through this world, don't be ashamed of Christ. Lift up your head. No shame. Walk tall. 
because you are in Christ and Christ is with you. There are many things that will shake you to the core. Our nation at this present moment has been shaken to the core. After 70 years, we've lost the reigning monarch. I've never known anybody on the throne except her. I was too young to remember her, her father. And I still balk at singing God Save the King. I've never sung that in my life <laughs> until the last few weeks. But she was portrayed as a figure of stability. And she was a stabilizing force. But within days of her death and then the funeral, what happened? Our nation descended into political chaos, economic chaos. But those things are outside of us. There are things that shake us personally to the core. Personal sickness. Trials in our family. Difficulties at work. Things that we're not in control of. And we can't get a control of them. But what is our comfort and confidence in those situations? Here is the living one who's with us, who is for us. Here are the grounds of our strong reassurance, our unyielding convictions, our persevering faith. faith. Jesus Christ will never abdicate his throne. He will never die like our recent monarch. He is alive forevermore. He is the one who will bring salvation to his church in all its fullness. He will bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And he's going to unfold all these things to the Apostle John so that we may know, we may be sure, we may be certain, and that we have not put our trust in him in vain. Praise, honor, and glory belongs to him forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, you've not left us to our sins and our failings, you've not left us without the capacity to trust in you and the grounds in your promises, in these disclosures of yourself, in your power and glory that belongs to you. Lord, we praise you. And Lord, we do pray that you would comfort us and strengthen us, enable us to live day by day to your praise and to your glory, loving you, obeying you, and serving you with all of our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.